Indeed, this is 702 for the curious. I'm joined on the line by Professor Andra Gillespie. She's Associate Professor at the Political Science uh, Department at Emroy University, Atlanta. She joins me now on the line. Prof, uh, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. And uh, thank you for just joining us at this time of the evening. I believe it's very, very early in the morning in uh, the United States. Oh, it's late afternoon. Oh, it's late afternoon. Okay, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Prof, first of all, we just need to get a sense. Uh, You know, those of us here at the tip of the African continent may not know, why why does the American system have a midterm election process? What is that all about? Um, So in the United States, um, our legislature, Congress, is divided into uh, two houses. We have an upper chamber, the U.S. Senate, where there are elections or senators hold six-year terms, but they're staggered every two years. And then there's a lower house, the House of Representatives, and um, every seat in that body gets elected every two years. So we have midterm elections um, so that um, the House of Representatives and one-third of the Senate can stand for elections. Well, the American... Uh, American politics have been fraught in recent years, and let me be uh, blunt and say that uh, since the election of uh, President Donald Trump, uh, the the politics of America have been fraught with a lot of divisive language. In fact, uh, some people are going as far as saying that uh, America has now become a country divided by the debate between nationalism and globalization. Uh, And it appears that with the election of Donald Trump, the nationalists won. Would that be a fair characterization of America's politics? Um, I mean, there is certainly a debate between nationalism and globalism. Sometimes those words are code for other things. And so certainly um, probably one of the most coherent um, aspects of, of Donald Trump's worldview is his opposition to multilateral uh, trade negotiations. Um, so it's not surprising that he would pull out of things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, and that also that he would side for you know multilateral or I guess in the case of what was formerly called NAFTA, even trilateral um, trade negotiations. Um, with countries. Um, on the other hand, you know, one of the other things to kind of think about when we're thinking about uh, what we're talking about with nationalism is what that means. So does that mean, um, you know, thinking about protectionism from a trade standpoint? Does that mean thinking about, um, you know, not necessarily intervening in um, every conflict around the globe? Um, but also what does that mean in terms of the context of race and ethnicity? And so yeah. somebody is asserting nationalism, who is included in that country? And so there's definitely a very fierce debate. President Trump has taken his position. He certainly has his supporters and allies, but there's also a very vocal opposition. Indeed, a very, very vocal opposition that uh, gets a lot of support from some of our popular culture uh, icons and uh, I suppose that's the greatest part of the politics of the United States that we consume here in South Africa when you see uh, people like Viola Davis, when you see uh, you know various uh, American uh, icons that we identify with here in South Africa Oprah Winfrey and, and even perhaps uh, former President Barack Obama makes a 
certain uh, statements, one gets a sense that you are good getting a particular and one-sided view. But what are the issues in the United States? I, I, I imagine uh, the issue of immigration is a big story. The issue of uh, trade agreements is a big story, as you've just uh, talked about. The issue of race seems to be coming out in the United States. What are the big issues that have been um, the discussion points leading to this particular election, this midterm election? So Democrats and Republicans had different issues which they chose to emphasize. So uh, President Trump, um, on behalf of Republicans, certainly emphasized immigration, um, and he made that a clarion call on the final days of the campaign. So in particular, we know that there is a group of migrants from Central America who's walking their way up Mexico trying to get to the U.S. border. And so President Trump made a point um, of saying that he's going to stop them when they finally arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, Democrats were focusing on health care in particular, and so the question of um, what's going to happen with the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. Um, and so one of the things that we can think about is we can look at public opinion data, which says that um, there were times that people had um, negative um, opinions about um, Obamacare, but there were actually aspects of the bill that people liked. So, for instance, people like the fact that they can keep their children on their health insurance. We don't have a national health insurance system um, until they're 26 years old. People like um, the fact that people with pre-existing conditions um, could not be denied um, access to health insurance because there were some companies who um, decided that they were too expensive. Um, and so there are things that people were concerned about keeping. Um, and so that message has proven effective in some elections. Um, it wasn't necessarily a panacea for, you know, every candidate who was running for office this cycle, but it was certainly an effective strategy. Um, and that coupled with the, you know, uh, history that suggests that presidents tend to lose seats in Congress during um, that first midterm election after they get elected probably did help propel some um, Democratic congressional candidates to victory. My guest is Professor Andra Gillespie. She's Associate Professor at the Political Science Department at Imroy University in Atlanta. We're talking about the U.S. midterm elections. So, Prof, we've been getting a lot of different uh, stories and I suppose the different uh, political players in the United States sounding as though they're all claiming victory. Um, you spoke of the different houses of uh, Congress. Uh, who won the elections? <laughs> I think it's a simple question. Who won the elections, the midterm elections? And what are the intricacies that we should be uh, aware of in, in that process? So going into the election, if we look at the executive branch, so the presidency and the legislative branch, um, we were in a period of unified party control. So there was a Republican president. The House of Representatives was controlled by Republicans. The Senate was controlled by Republicans. Right. Um, after this midterm election, Democrats have had a net gain in seats such that they have now taken over the majority of the House of Representatives. Um, and the Senate has, Republicans have actually held on to control of the U.S. Senate and have actually gained a few seats. Now, what that means is that we're going to be entering a period of divided party control where um, you're not going to see um, the Democrats in the House of Representatives, for instance, walk in lockstep with their Republican counterparts in the Senate to try to pass President Trump's uh, legislation. So that um, may make it harder for some initiatives to be able to get passed. Also, 
um, because our government um, has a presidential system that is separate from uh, from the from the legislature, our ministers are not uh, legislators, and so because of that. Um, there is an oversight capacity, so the legislative branch is supposed to look at what happens in the White House and in all of the departments and agencies that fall under the executive branch to make sure that they are following the law, that they're doing things um, correctly. With Democrats now controlling the House of Representatives, they're going to use their committee structure to be able to provide oversight over the executive branch in ways that Republicans probably did not do when they were in charge of the chamber. Um, and there are also going to be implications for, you know, people talk about whether or not President Trump should uh, be impeached. And so in general, people have been, um, some of the leadership has actually been really cautious against making those types of statements. But when you have one party in control of each House of Congress, uh, making consensus on something that, that's import- that, that, that is that important, that would require a supermajority in order to make it happen, makes that less likely, um, you know, um, if, if, if information change, we might have to come back and revisit that type of situation. But, yeah, um, the other thing that sort of comes up is in the Senate, you can, what, what, Senate, what parties would love to have is to have 60 senators of the same party. What that means is that um, the minority party can't stop or um, the discussion or of certain types of issues by, like, never being able to close debate on a particular matter. Republicans aren't going to get there. Um, and so even though they gain seats in the Senate, they're not, they're nowhere near 60. And so as a result of that, I think, you know, you're still going to see slow going for a lot of legislation. So if I understand you correctly, Professor, you are saying to me that the power of the support from the Senate and the House of Representatives that uh, President Trump may have had prior to the mid uh, midterm elections has now been stemmed somewhat. Um, it has been reduced somewhat with the fact that uh, in the House of Representatives, the Democrats have now gained a number of seats. But of course, in the Senate, the uh, Republicans have uh, also gained a number of seats. So does that mean that uh, President Donald Trump will be somewhat of a lame duck president in terms of his ability to make certain decisions? Or does that mean that he can still make certain decisions but he would need to convince a lot more people to support him, as it were. Well, President Trump is not acting like a lame duck. Um, And so um, he um, has, um, you know, has a very positive reaction to the results. I think everybody expected that uh, the Democrats were going to take control of the House of Representatives. I think he's very much buoyed by the gain in seats in the Senate. So in particular, the House of Representatives doesn't have anything to do with nominations um, and sort of affirming or confirming nominees for courts or for um, executive offices, so cabinet secretaries and, and, and those kinds of things. So with more Republican senators, um, uh, it makes it less likely that a couple of Democratic or Republican senators, excuse me, could stop the confirmation of a judge, for instance, or a cabinet secretary. So, you know, in that respect, President Trump actually feels pretty emboldened and quite comfortable until he has said that if his White House is being investigated, um, he, uh, you know, is happy to push back against some of those investigations. And, of course, the fact that the House of Representatives 
not not the House of Representatives. The Senate has more Republicans than it has Democ- Dem- Democrats. Is that part of the reason why he feels so so buoyed, so so upbeat? Yes. So um, you know, so one way to look at this is we look at the recent confirmation of uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. So um, at the time, Republicans had um, fifty-one seats. To Democrats, and so that includes independents and Democrats, to um, a 49 seat it, um, um, advantage in the House. So now that that advantage has grown, if you have a case like Brett Kavanaugh, where you have um, one or two senators who could have completely, like you know, gone and voted against Kavanaugh with the Democrats, and then it would could have either forced um, a tie, where Mike Pence, the vice president, would have to issue a tie-breaking vote. Um, or where you get this very narrow majority. So what ends up happening in the Kavanaugh case is Kavanaugh gets confirmed with 50, uh, with 50 votes. So it was a 50 to 48 vote, if I recall, because there were a couple of senators who sat out the race. You now have a much more comfortable margin that yeah. if those senators were on the fence, and so the two senators who are going to remain in the chamber next year, if, if Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins decide not to vote with the Republican Party on certain types of issues, they now have a couple more senators in the Republican caucus who will then offset those votes. So you don't have to worry um, as much about um, having to have Mike Pence on call to break ties, um, or you might not always get like that 51 vote margin on certain issues. Professor, I suppose then it does make sense that all the parties were announcing victories um, yesterday when the election results were coming out. And and would I be correct that all of the election results have come through? Uh, no, no, no. There's still races so, that are so, being decided. Right. So okay. In the Senate race, for instance, Florida and Arizona have not been decided. Um, and there are likely some House races. So in my own state, there was a House race. Yeah. Uh, that was decided today. So, yeah, no, so it's, it's going to take a couple of days to make sure that everything is counted because, yeah. you know, one of the things, given the divisions in the country, votes are less conclusive. Like, it really is coming down to every last vote. And so yeah. when you see these yeah. margins yeah. where people are winning by a percentage point or less, that usually sometimes triggers runoff um, or it will trigger recounts where people, and so you've just got to count and, and, and make sure that one person is clearly ahead of another in a contest. So I suppose that means that whether the, you know, with the results that are going to ultimately be confirmed when they are, uh, when they're being, when they're being uh, counted, you can only say that um, a particular issue is going to go a particular direction based on who wins which house, I suppose. So I, I would, I'd like to ask you this question. I mean, there are so many different issues that make up for interest, at least here in South Africa, for, for, for Americans, uh, with, with Americans. There is call that President um, Donald Trump be impeached by certain people in the United States of America. Under which conditions in both the uh, uh, House of Representatives and the Senate, would that be a possible reality? So would the president be impeached if the uh, if the uh, Democrats were a majority in the House of Senate 
uh, uh, what would need to happen if the president were to be impeached, if a serious call for his impeachment were made? What would the, um, the, I suppose, the number of seats need to look like in the different houses uh, um, that you've just talked about? Uh, Well, impeachments require two-thirds votes. And so um, neither party is going to get to two-thirds control. Um, and so that's even that was even true under unified uh, of Republican control. So the majorities that both parties have held um, in the House and, and for the last few years the Senate um, for the Republican Party have been pretty thin. So I mean it's been pretty close to fifty fifty. So um, you know we're looking at sort of you know one uh, party having uh, you know fifty one percent of the seats. Um, you know, maybe a little bit more in the House of Representatives. And so that's the same thing that's happened now that the Democrats will take over. Um, and so now we'll see that the Republican Party may be up to 53 seats. We'll see how many more, but they're not going to get to 60, and they're certainly not going to be at 67. So um, impeachment is a tall order, and especially since we don't have enough information. So there is an investigation that's going on right now that's looking at uh, the role that Russia may have played in interfering in the 2016 election. We don't know what information is going to come out. And so we don't know if that information is the type of information that might kind of help to create a bipartisan consensus that there needs to be action taken um, against the president. And so that's why you've heard so many um, Democratic leaders come out and say that calls for impeachment are premature. So the um, issues that we've been hearing a lot about here in South Africa has, of course, been the trade wars between China and the United States, and that has affected us quite, uh, quite, quite heavily with our petrol prices and fuel prices going through the roof and all sorts of different things. But what does all of this mean for America's uh, foreign relations? And I suppose um, there would be certain principles that would underlie America's foreign relations, whether they be uh, bilateral uh, relations with a South Africa, for example, or just as a principle, foreign relations, multilateral foreign relations uh, with other countries. What does this mean for foreign relations with the United States? Well, oh, with other countries, sorry. Well, I mean, so, I mean, there, there are a number of things. President Trump has, has taken a new tone with countries. Um, he, um, you know, doesn't always want to, um, you know, engage in the same types of, say, military alliances or necessary engagements, I should say, um, compared to previous presidents. Um, he's, I, I wouldn't exactly characterize him as an isolationist, but... Um, you know, he's not somebody who's necessarily going to want to sort of get involved and engage troops in many places all over the world. So he's not seeking to be the world's policeman, um, as some people, you know, have described other administrations. Um, he also uh, tends to value bilateral um, agreements and negotiations. Um, so, um, so I mean, so so I, I and then also there becomes a question of tone, um, and so. Um, we have seen sort of him alternate between uh, being sometimes harsh uh, with world leaders and then, um, you know, becoming really chummy with them. Um, and he does this saying that he can get, he can negotiate better using these circumstances. And so I think it remains to be seen sort of whether or not his negotiating style actually reaps 
long-term benefits. Yeah, and I see that uh, a lot of people saying that there is, you know, people can really claim victory because of the number of women that have now um, gained seats in, uh, I'm not sure which which of the houses, are, and many of them being people that have uh, perhaps foreign ethnic origin. Uh, I believe there's a lady by the name of Ilan, um, I forget what her surname is, who has uh, African Somali um, uh, heritage, uh, and I'm told that that is to be understood as a victory. How so, and what does this mean? So women are underrepresented um, in Congress, and so uh, we're now going to see a growth in the number of women in Congress still very much underrepresented. So yeah. women so are going to make up about a fourth of the chamber um, um, in the House of Representatives. So, um, but the fact that there are more women, the fact that there will be women of color, um, and so, um, so not just women with foreign backgrounds, um, but um, uh, women who, um, you know, um, are, you know, claim African American heritage or yeah. claim uh, Latina American heritage or Native American heritage, right, you know, th- this just sort of lends institutional legitimacy to Congress where you see more people who look like America in the chamber helping to make decisions. And is how is that going down with with the Republicans? I mean, is this is this something that is uh, acceptable to the Republicans, given the fact that the general tone and mantra of the Republicans has sounded very isolationist, very um, uh, how should we say, uh, yeah, very very right wing almost. Well. Um so most of, 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 of these uh, new uh, members of Congress who are coming in um, who are diverse are Democrats. Um, most uh, minorities, racial and ethnic minorities in the United States identify as Democrats in their voting behavior. Um, so it's not surprising that their representatives would be more Democratic. Um, you know, given sort of the history of race and racism in the United States, this is definitely something that's a challenge. Um, and President Trump's uh, rhetoric, which is racially charged, um, and maybe mobilizing people um, based on base instincts, um, is something that the Republican Party is going to have to address long term. So, as America continues to diversify, can you continue to play the race um, in negative ways and actually still hope to be electorally viable? Sometimes we get American news in very monolithic terms, and uh, we don't get some of the uh, intricacies that make up for U.S. politics. And one of the narratives that has been coming through is that the United States is a nation more divided than it's ever been in its, hi- its, in its entire history. Would that be true? Would that characterize the United States at the moment? Or is this just the, um, the uh, robust democratic character of the United States of America? Well, let's just say that the divisions, I think, are very apparent to very many people. Okay, okay. That's quite telling. Professor, I want to thank you very much for your time and uh, your, uh, your just, uh, just the way that you've been able to educate us about the way that the American system works. I really appreciate your time and uh, hope we'll speak again sometime soon. Thank you. All right, Professor uh, Andra Gillespie, Associate Professor of the Political Science uh, Department at Imroy University in Atlanta.